right, how are we doing at the 9.30? We good? We ready to go? My name is Bryant, lead pastor here. Glad you're with us. If you're jumping in, we're right in the middle of this series, Does God Make Sense? But this honestly is a perfect time to engage. And even over these next couple weeks, next weekend is Mother's Day, as Jay said. We'd love for you to celebrate with us. I'm going to do the weirdest, strangest Mother's Day message ever because we're just going to continue um, in this series and talk about why does a good, loving God um, allow evil. So that may be good news for you because I'm not going to do the proverbial Proverbs 31 message and then you all away as a mom like, dang it, I suck, you know, so I'm not going to do that to you this year. We're just going to continue with this series, but we do want to celebrate baby dedications, and so um, if you're interested in that, go to our website, but it's going to be an incredible weekend next weekend. Um, in um, this uh, service and every service this weekend, you have a card on your chair somewhere around you, or maybe you're sitting on it, and on the top it says Next Steps. And I've been kind of announcing this, but we're going to kind of ramp it up over the next few weeks to let you know what this is, because I'm not overstating when I say this is the biggest thing that our church is doing this summer and this year and into 2018, um, because this is kind of our new environment to help everybody who comes through our growing church, our growing gathering, to help them in two ways, basically. To connect here, to really feel like they belong, and then number two, to really equip to help you help us grow in our faith. And so if you are in that place, which at some level all of us are, we'd love for you to go through this environment. It starts the first weekend in June. And it'll always run through a service. Um, starting out, it'll probably run through our 11 a.m., so childcare is already provided. You don't have to have an extra night or day of the week. And it is so important. And many of you, you have questions around how to connect. How do I grow in my faith? What's the story of our church? How did we get here? And all of that is answered through these four steps. And so they'll run every week of every month other than like holidays and fifth Sundays, basically throughout the year. Week one is step one, week two is step two, and you do not have to sign up, you just show up. And so I've said this for a few weeks, but we would love for you, whether you've been here two weeks, which is some of you, or whether you've been here since the launch of our church, to go through these steps, even if you think you already have all this down. That's amazing and congratulations. But you should go and then just invite one or two other people, maybe who aren't connected yet, who aren't where you are, and just go through these steps with them because it'll also help you down the road as you invite people to our church. So if you're looking to connect, grow, hear the story of our church, and just kind of really move to a place where you just attend to where you feel like you belong here, that's what we are all about because our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not content with just growing numerically and having people sit in a seat. We want to connect them to the life of our body. We want it to be personal. And this is the, the basically primary onboarding process for our church. And so my time's ticking away. That's all I can say about it. But are you guys with me? Next step, starting the first week in June. All right, thank you. All right, so let's dive in. Does God make sense? And throughout this series, I've tried to make really clear what my kind of focus is, and it's really this. It's people who specifically kind of grew up in a religious environment or grew up in a Christian environment, and then somewhere along the way, they just walked away. That's really the focus of this series. And as I've said in this series, to just be really overt, I think in a lot of cases, it's the church's fault. We've kind of done that to them. And then what happens, and this is what creates so much angst in me, is you grow up in that, you walk away, and all of a sudden you find yourself kind of stuck in the middle of two extremes. You either have these overwhelming doubts about theism, and all of a sudden kind of your life experience, what you have encountered, somehow seems irreconcilable with the God that you were handed as a child. And so you have overwhelming doubts about theism, 
But then to go all the way to the other side of atheism is really difficult as well because on that side, sometimes there seems to be despair over the fact that there's a godless universe. Like, where does purpose come from if there is no God connected in any way? And I'm not saying by any means that all atheists like live in despair, but I'm just saying many of you are stuck in the middle of overwhelming doubts about a God who now seems irreconcilable with your experiences or kind of this thought of despair over a godless universe. And so you just kind of find yourself in the middle. I don't know if I believe this anymore, but I don't know if I believe this either. And my, my really invitation is really clear. I want to invite some of you back, not just in the room, but the hundreds, thousands who are podcasting us. I want you to, to come back and give Jesus another look. Because many of you, as we said in this series, walked away from a version of Christianity. You walked away from a version of Jesus that never existed to begin with. As I said last week, in all of the conversations I've had, it's been a lot, with people who have deconverted from Christianity, if I can use that terminology, not a single one of my conversations with those individuals had anything to do with Christianity. That in many cases, you may have walked away from something that never existed to begin with. In fact, last week, here's what we said, that many of you were handed kind of a somebody said God. And you can go back and listen to that on SoundCloud or on our website, but whether it was hedge of protection God or on-demand God or guilt God or anti-science God or fill-in-the-gap God, somebody said, like a pastor, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, and you kind of picked up this version of somebody said God that never existed to begin with. In fact, throughout this series, I've loved the stories, and I've had two of uh, multiple face-to-face conversations and then just a bunch of stories that have been sent to me. And one was from a guy who said, I I thought I was an atheist before this series. And now I realize in light of last week that I walked away from anti-science God because I grew up thinking you had to choose between science or God. And I realized I walked away from a version of God that never existed. I talked to another a guy who grew up in, in kind of a Christian home. His dad was a pastor, and he said, I walked away from faith a long time ago, and I realized that I walked away from kind of this hybrid version of guilt God, that that's all I ever knew about God. And again, I realized I walked away from something that never existed. And then I had one other conversation with a lady face-to-face, and she was telling me about the fact that she, again, she grew up, this is so many of people's stories, grew up in a Christian environment, and she kind of had this, this idea of what God's like, and then she watched literally a documentary that took the legs out from under her faith, that everything that she had been told kind of came crashing down. And again, she said, I'm beginning to realize that I, I kind of had this version of a, a childhood God that never kind of grew up. It was never explained beyond Sunday school, and now I've walked away from something that I'm realizing may, maybe didn't exist to begin with. And so my whole point is this, that maybe if you're struggling with doubts, maybe if you're investigating, you walked away from a God who really does not exist, a God that you won't find in the scripture. Maybe you just walked away from a somebody said God. So here's the question I want to look at today for a few minutes, that if the somebody said gods don't exist, the little g gods, If there is a God that does exist, how do we know what that God is like? How do we get an accurate accurate picture if there is a God or if you're trying to make sense of God? Now, here's what I want to do before I dive into this, and this is going to require you to stay with me for the next five minutes and not count lights and not wander off, and if you're watching online, to click off your other browsers, because if I lose you in the course of this, you'll think I'm saying something that I'm not, so I need you to engage. Are you with me for the next couple minutes? Yeah, okay, not really convinced by that, but I need you to be with me. And then I'm going to dive into where I want to go with, okay, if there is a God, how do we know he he exists? But before I get there, I just need to say this. 
And this is what I will tell my 17-year-old son, Ryder, when we have this conversation. This is what I would tell 21-year-old Brooke as a senior in college. And this is so important for you to understand. And if you misunderstand me, go back and listen to the podcast again and don't freak out before you leave, okay? I need you to hang with me because nobody, and maybe in certain circles, has ever explained it to you this way. But this is so huge specifically if you've walked away from kind of a childhood version of faith, and so here's where I'm going with this, is that Christianity and our view of God does not exist because of the Bible. Christianity and our view of God does not exist because of the Bible, any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Like, you don't exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened, and that's a huge distinction. In fact, here's what you need to know. We have a Bible because of Christianity. We have a Bible specifically because something happened in history. What we believe was the physical bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave after he was nailed to a cross, the event that launched and started Christianity and ultimately necessitated a Bible that all of us, thankfully, have in our hands or on our phones. Here's why that's important. Because if you walked away from a question about the Bible or because of an argument that was raised in a freshman English class or some inconsistency you can't quite reconcile, you may have walked away unnecessarily. In fact, I I love a blog I came across several years ago by a girl named Jessica Meisner. And the title of her blog was, Why I Miss Being a Born Again Christian. And it's kind of an article where she makes fun, but at the same time she makes some serious points. And she talks about the epidemic of students who kind of grow up in Christian homes and then they go away to college and they have their faith completely undermined, specifically around the subject of the Bible. And here's one part of that article that, that I just thought was huge. And she says this, we evangelicals with our infallible view of the scripture ripped from our hands and, you know, in a freshman English college class, we are left grasping for air. If you crumble and toss out a literal reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for our sins? And here's what she's saying, is that she grew up with this faith and she went off to college and suddenly one question was raised about one part of the Bible. One argument was raised about one part of the part of the Bible. One unanswered question was surfaced about one area of the Bible, and when that happened, her faith came crumbling to the ground. It took the legs out from under her faith. And we believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. But here's what you need to know. Christianity does not rise and fall on the Bible. This may give you permission to re-engage and begin to reinvestigate Jesus and even begin to follow Jesus because the starting place for you is the question, who is Jesus and what happened in history? And there is a Bible and there is a Jesus movement because of what happened in history that launched the whole thing. And without that launching pad, without the resurrection, you would have no Bible as you know it today and you wouldn't know much about the Jewish scriptures and the Jesus movement would not be alive any longer. See, we are not here because of the Bible. The Bible did not launch the Jesus movement. The resurrection of Christ launched the Jesus movement. 
In fact, here's what's really interesting, is for 300 plus years, nobody had a Bible as we know it today. They had scraps of writings. They had some of the Jewish scriptures. Most didn't have access to it. And here's what's really interesting, that in those 300 years when there was no Bible as we have it, you could make the argument as you study history that Christianity flourished in those 300 years in a way that it has not flourished in history. Because people believed that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. They began to share the stories. There was eyewitness accounts. But that is the thing that moved the message beyond Easter weekend. It's why thousands and thousands and thousands of people embraced the message of Jesus before there was a Bible says. It's why thousands of people began to follow. In fact, here's an interesting fact, and i got to go quick. But before there was a Bible, like Old Testament, New Testament, as we know it today... Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods and was the state religion of the Roman Empire without a Bible because they believed that Jesus actually rose from the grave and thousands embraced that message. It changed the world without raising a sword or rising up an army. And here's the other thing that's interesting is that throughout Jesus' life, Jesus pointed to the Jewish scriptures and said, all of these scriptures that you guys grew up with studying the Torah in Jewish Sunday school, if you had such a thing, all of them are about me. Like the entire Jewish scriptures points to me, which is unbelievably arrogant or it's true. And Jesus, as he walked the earth, began to tell people this and people began to believe it. No, we think that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all of the Jewish scriptures, And then he died. And as we said on Easter, when Jesus died, nobody believed his message any longer. Nobody believed his claims any longer. The movement was over. And on Easter weekend, the movement wasn't reignited because they had a Bible and then they started reading their Bible and suddenly they're like, no, this is legit. And the movement moved beyond the first century. They did not re-engage because of something Jesus taught or because of something they read. They re-engaged because of something they saw. See, Christianity preceded the Bible. The movement moved before we ever had what we have today. And then a little while longer, just stay with me for a second, and I'll move past the history lesson. Gentiles began to go back to the Jewish scriptures and go, I think that what the Jewish people are talking about is true. Jesus actually rose from the grave. I have a neighbor, Bob, and he saw it. I mean, he was there. He's part of the 500. And so they began to go back to the Jewish scriptures and began to investigate, and they realized that the Jewish scriptures really did point to Jesus. And so the Gentiles began to do something that was unbelievably offensive to Jewish people, and they organized this old covenant, they called it an old covenant, which was the Jewish scriptures, and that was offensive because Jewish people are like, it's not old, this is like the deal. And they're like, no, there's an old covenant, and now we're going to combine these first century documents, we're going to call it a new covenant, because Jesus said, I'm introducing a new covenant, a new way, salvation to the world. But there was not a Bible until about 350 AD. In 133 AD, Miletus of Sardis was the first to actually categorize Old Testament books and call it the Old Testament. And then people with the eyewitness accounts of what had happened, the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, they began to copy these things. They began to distribute them. And thousands and thousands and thousands of copies began to be dispersed within those few hundred years because this event was seen as so powerful and so valuable. Quick parentheses. If you're kind of one of those people who would say, well, man, there's so many different disparities and, and so many different inconsistencies and just all of, all of these different manuscripts are different. Can I just tell you that? And I want to say this as gracious as I can. You haven't studied it. 
Like, that, that is an uneducated opinion, and I just say that with a ton of grace. It's just not true. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, and there are hundreds of disparities. But here's the beautiful thing. You could go get an English study Bible, and you may already have one, and you can see in the footnotes, little asterisk, all of the different variations in the text among thousands and thousands and thousands of copies where we can all compare them. And here's what you need to know. There's not a single historical or theological difference that any of those variations make. None of them say, well, Jesus died on a cross, and then there's another one that says, no, he fell off a ladder in Jerusalem. None of them do that, and I'm making fun, but they, they make no historical or theological difference. And here's the other thing. They would, they would transcribe, they would copy these things on wax parchment, which was incredibly expensive, and they didn't have a lot of money. I'm telling you, they were username and password careful, if nothing else, because it was very, very expensive and this was incredibly important. And so we have thousands of documents to compare all of these slight variations and they make no difference whatsoever. But my whole point is this, that we have a Bible because of the Jesus movement that was launched by the resurrection. And that's important because if you walked away, and if you're listening to me on podcast, if you walked away because of one unanswered question in the Bible, you probably walked away unnecessarily because it does not rise and fall on the Bible. It rises on and falls on who is Jesus and what did he do in history. And for 350 years, people followed him without the Bible says because there was no Bible. And here's the thing, we believe the Jewish scriptures are legit because all of the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus and Jesus referred to the Jewish scriptures as legit. And we take Jesus seriously for one very, like, just clear reason to quote who needs God. When anybody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, you go with whatever that guy says, Right? So we take the Jewish scripture seriously because Jesus pointed to it, and we take Jesus seriously because he died and came back to life. So yes to whatever you're saying because you came back out of a grave alive. That's why we take it seriously. So if somebody asks me, okay, so what's your view of the Old Testament? Mine's the same as Jesus. And I love you, but Jesus died and then came back to life. So I'm just going to take Jesus seriously with whatever he says. All that to say, your faith does not hinge even on the verifiability of everything in the Jewish scriptures. And in fact, the Old Testament could vanish tomorrow and it does nothing to undermine Christianity. Here's what is so important, and here's what I put in my notes. People follow Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection, See, there was nothing religious about the faith of first century followers. It was JV League because they re-engaged and Christianity began not because people believed something or read something. It began because people saw something. That is very different than just have faith, just have faith. Listen to me. Christianity, your relationship with Jesus begins through faith. You should never become a Christian because of faith. Christianity was always faith in overwhelming evidence. It is not nearly as fragile as you think it is. It does not hinge on one passage. Did, I mean, I don't know if there's really evidence for a mass exodus out of Egypt. I don't know if science measures up with, you know, how old the earth is. I don't know if the walls of Jericho could have literally come down. I don't see any evidence of a worldwide flood. It 
It does not hinge on any of those things. I mean, imagine sitting down with Peter and like, Peter, I don't understand Jericho and there is no archaeological evidence for a mass exodus out of Egypt. And Peter's like, are you serious? I saw my friend die, thought he was dead, went to a tomb, he wasn't there, and then I had breakfast with him on the beach. What is your question again? What about Jericho? What about the what? what? I, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll figure those questions out. There's probably an answer to them. But my faith does not hinge on that. If it was that fragile, it would have never survived the first century. And so to quote, who needs God? Jesus loves you, this you know, because Matthew documented it, because John was there and he wrote about it, because James, the brother of Jesus, thought his brother was a nut job and then followed him after Easter weekend, because Paul, a fire-breathing Pharisee that tried to stamp out Christianity, became a follower of Christ, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people began to follow before you had a Bible in 350 AD, and most didn't have a Bible until the printing press. We are not here, and we do not believe because of the Bible. We are here because Jesus walked out of a grave alive, and the starting place for does God make sense is who is Jesus, and what did he do in history, and the evidence is overwhelming. There is no reason for you as a sophomore in some college campus to have the legs taken out from under your faith because of the Bible. And I own it. We've done that to you. The church has done that to you. We have set up a terrible apologetic. For hundreds of years, the apologetic for the church was the resurrection and not the Bible. But then in the West, everybody just accepted the Bible with no questions. And so we shifted our apologetic and we have set you up with a house of cards. It is not fragile, and it depends on what happened in history. So with all that said, that's my introduction. With all that said, and I'm going to go quick the rest of the time, and I know you don't believe me, but I really am. With all that said, here's what you need to know. Just as we can take Jesus' words about himself as trustworthy, meaning Jesus said he was going to die and rise from the grave. The Jewish scriptures pointed to that, and Jesus did it. So just as we can take what Jesus said about himself as trustworthy, we can take what Jesus said about God as trustworthy. And we believe it because of what Jesus did, because Jesus verified it. When he walked out of a grave, he validated the Jewish scriptures and he necessitated what we now know as the New Testament because of what he did. And because we could trust him, we can trust what he says about God. And as Jesus walked planet Earth in the first century, Jesus over and over again said, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you want to know what God's about, look at me. If you want to have an idea, an accurate picture of God, look at me. When Jesus is at the Jordan River and John's about to baptize him and this weird voice comes from heaven, my paraphrase is is basically he says, if you want to know about God, watch my boy. Jesus is the personification and the picture of God. He is God. And so John comes along to write about this, and this is where it starts. Does God make sense? That question begins and ends with Jesus. And so John comes along, and John is a guy who was exiled by Emperor Domitian. He's on an island basically by himself at the end of his life. John had been so close with Jesus, he had seen unbelievable torture, unbelievable terror, unbelievable, horrific events. He had watched most of his friends die. He probably was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He had seen so much bloodshed, so much murder. And he begins to record something that Jesus said, and John was there when he said it and believed that it was absolutely true. And here's what John records about what Jesus said as Jesus kind to introduce people 
to what God was like. In John chapter 14, verse 7. Are you still with me? If you really know me, this is Jesus, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And all his guys are like, actually, we haven't. And so we would like to see him. And you talk about the fact that you're tight with him. So Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And that's going to be enough for us. Like, just give us like a little, just quick, like appearance. Like, have him come and just, I mean, it doesn't have to be very long. But you talk about how tight you are with God. If we could just see God for a second, that would be beautiful. And then Jesus says the craziest thing. This is what you should consider about the New Testament. This is, he is either nuts or it's true. I mean, there's just no middle ground because of what Jesus said about himself. And so he says, verse 9, anyone who has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father. And all of Jesus' guys are like, dang, Jesus, don't say that. Like, you make yourself sound crazy. You're equating yourself with God. You're putting yourself up there and on the equal plane of of God. Like, that's not going to help this movement. Verse 10, Jesus, again, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And so in essence, you want to know what God says? Listen to me. You, know, you want to know what God's up to? Watch me. I, I am the picture and the personification of what God is like. And then he says something that a lot of us have missed somewhere along the way, and I love this in verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. And again, his guys are like, again, that's crazy. Please stop. And then the end of his verse, he says this, and I love this. Or at least believe on the, and I want you to say this word with me, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus is like, okay, guys, guys, I know it's a little crazy. I know that my claims about myself are a little bit over the top. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the son of God. That's a huge claim. I am the Messiah. That's, that's over the top. So I, I get it. So here's what I want you to do. I'm not asking you to maybe believe what I say, but look at the evidence. I'm not asking for you to have faith in faith. I'm not asking for you to have some weird religious faith where just believe, just believe, just have faith. I'm asking you to watch me and draw conclusions about the evidence. And so here's the question that you have to answer is, what did Jesus say about God? Not what you grew up with. Not your hybrid versions of somebody said God, not what a Sunday school teacher handed off to you with great intentions, not any of those things, but what is God like? And the answer to that question is to ask, what did Jesus say about God? And here's a couple things that Jesus said. Jesus said that God is spirit. God is spirit. One day Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. And I think we get to heaven, she's going to be like, I had a name. Are you serious? Like, I'm just the woman at the well? And we're like, we don't know your name, sorry. But the woman, at, the woman at the well, Jesus is having a conversation, and she's basically in an argument with Jesus about God because she's a Samaritan, and her idea of God is very, very different. And so basically, she's arguing with Jesus about God, which that's not going to go well, but there she is. And I love this interaction because Jesus is so compassionate toward this woman. If you want to know what God is like, watch what Jesus did. And there he is in this conversation, and in kind of this argument or this tension, he turns to her, and John records it, and here's what he says, John 4, 24, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, hang with me for a second, because I want you to get this. 
This is amazing. It, 2,000 years ago, this was amazing for first century audience, and, and they embraced this. The Jewish people embraced this. They believed that God was immaterial, that God was spaceless, and that God was timeless, but specifically immaterial. It's why that the Jewish people didn't have any idols unlike the culture and unlike every other pagan religion where they would literally build temples around little graven images, not the Jewish people, because they knew that God was immaterial, God was spaceless, God was timeless, because Jesus said, God is spirit. And here's what is even more fascinating and so unbelievably powerful is that 2,000 years later, 2017, that is exactly what educated modern people would think if we take science seriously, because science says that there was a singularity, to use the scientific word, there was a singularity to everything that happened in the universe. And after that singularity, there was time, there was space, there was matter, there was the laws of nature, and there was the laws of physics to govern the laws of nature. And before that, none of those things existed. But after that singularity, all of those things existed. And Christians have always believed that there was an uncreated creator, that there was a necessary being, that there was a first cause. Okay, science, tell us what that first cause is like. Well, that first cause, here's what we know about it in science terms. I don't even know if I believe God. It's immaterial. It's spaceless. It's timeless. It's, I'm not even going to use supernatural because that freaks people out. Here's what science would say, that that singularity was supernatural, meaning it was beyond the normal laws of nature. And 2,000 years ago, which is exactly what modern people would think, Jesus said, let me boil it down for first century audience. God is spirit. God is immaterial, God is spaceless, God is timeless, and that is exactly what we would expect if we take God and science seriously about an uncreated first cause. Jesus says God is spirit. That's unbelievable. It may just be unbelievable to me, but John keeps going because he's like, okay, but spirit doesn't really help us because spirit's just spirit. That doesn't, that doesn't do a whole lot for us. And so he keeps explaining, and John says next as he records what Jesus says, that God is Father. And this is not the reflection of earthly father, no matter how great your earthly father was, and in some cases how bad your earthly father was. This is the perfection of father. I love Jesus' interaction with his guys one day when Jesus is praying, and it's kind of funny to me, he's praying and his guys listen to him pray and suddenly they kind of turn to one another and then to him to go, we don't do it like that. Like Jesus prays in a way that we don't pray that like we, I mean, there's just something about that connection, something about the way he prays and we want to learn to pray that way. We want to learn to do what he does. And so Jesus turns to them and says, okay, you want to know how to pray the way I pray? You want to know what all of this about is about? He says, when you pray, I want you to say, Father. Father. In fact, just say that with me. When you pray, I want you to say, Father. The most personal, the most relational, the most intimate term I can come up with because God is not a man. God is not a gender. God is spirit. But Jesus said he's also personal. And so the best reflection, the best picture, the best example that I can give your finite minds because it's hard for us to understand an infinite God, the best example that I could give you so that you understand it is that God is Father. He's personal. He's relational. He's near. He's intimate. He's close. And so he says to his guys, this is, this is how you refer to God. 
And see, this is, this is the beginning place. Like if you have questions about faith, if you're investigating, if you're not sure about the whole thing, you should just start there. And that's incredibly weird, but you just should. Just father, that's all I got. Just father. But I've been invited to call God father. And maybe it's just father. I, I don't believe, but I want you to help me believe. And Jesus says, that's the starting place because God is spirit and God is father. He's far away. He's close. He's powerful. He's above all. He's sovereign. He is glory in its essence, but he is personal. And John says through being with Jesus and recording Jesus' words, God is spirit. God is father. And then he keeps going after the resurrection. John is toward the end of his life, and he sits down to record everything that he had learned from Jesus about God. And John sits down to record all this, and what he records next is, has so infiltrated our thinking that we forget its origin. It's so infiltrated our culture that we forget where it came from. It has so dominated the globe that we think it's human nature, and it's not human nature if you study history. It is a virtue that did not exist in first century Roman world. And John, in that world, looking back on Jesus' life, says, Jesus and God is love. And John, here's what you need to know had his view of God completely rearranged. John was a guy who grew up Jewish, and so their idea of God was God loved Jewish people a lot, and he pretty much tolerated everybody else. And that John, with that view of God that he grew up with, kind of a somebody said God, that, view, that John who saw, again, unbelievable torture, unbelievable terror, murder. He watched rotting bodies on Roman crosses. He lost all of his friends. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem. John, who saw the most unloving things in culture imaginable, came to the conclusion that God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And then Jesus, and I can't overestimate the drama of this moment, Right before he's about to be crucified, right before he's about to be betrayed, he's with his inner circle of guys in an upper rented room apartment, and he says to them in this dramatic moment, hey guys, you just need to know, I know this is completely the antithesis of culture, but the distinguishing mark going forward of my followers is going to be that they love one another, because love is the essence and it is the nature of who God is. And that shouldn't surprise us because the shade needs the sun. Let me explain that. You can have sun without shade, but you cannot have shade without sun. Evil requires that there is good. Good, hang with me for a second, good must necessarily pre-exist evil. Love must necessarily pre-exist unlove. You cannot have unlove first. You cannot have shade without the sun. You can have sun without shade, but you cannot have shade without sun. You cannot have evil without good. You cannot have unlove without love preceding it. And John, toward the end of his life, with all of the torture and all of the violence that he had seen, comes to the conclusion that God is love. See, this is why God cannot be evil. It's why the Roman and the Greek gods could not be God, because they had a lot of things attributed to them, but love was never one of them. Love, I'm telling you, in first century culture was not a virtue. It was might made right. 
And we know that the Roman Greek gods could not be God because intellectually, good must pre-exist evil. God could not be evil. In 2017, it is exactly what modern people would expect if there is a God, that the essence and the nature of God is love. See, you know what evil is, and you know what injustice is, because you know good, and you know justice. And to quote C.S. Lewis, every time you appeal to aught, And it ought not be that way. And every time you appeal to good, and every time you appeal to right, and every time you appeal to justice, and every time you appeal to love, you are unknowingly declaring the essence and the existence of God. Just like every time you move into the shade, you are declaring the essence and the existence of the sun. You cannot have shade without sun. You cannot have evil without good. You cannot have unlove without love preceding it. The only way that you know what it is is because you know there is a sun. The only way that you are comfortable in the shade is because you know that there is a sun. And when you come to the place to go, man, I just don't know if I believe the Jesus thing or the Bible, and I just don't know if I can grasp any of that, but I just believe that God loves everyone. Here's what you need to know. You are appealing to a distinctly Christian ethic that did not exist before John recorded it after observing the life of Jesus. Love must necessarily pre-exist everything that is less than love in order for you to be intellectually honest. It's why God cannot be evil. It's why love had to pre-exist the fact that you know what unlove is. So here's the question that we're going to look at next week in the weirdest Mother's Day message ever. If God is love, why is there evil in the world? But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. How do you know there's evil in the world? How do you know that the world is broken? How do you know that you're broken? Why do you stare up at the ceiling sometimes and forget everybody else's standards, forget cultural standards? Why do you not do what you think you should do? Why do you feel this idea that something's Where did that come from? Why do you feel comfortable in the shade? Because you know there's a sun. Why do you feel guilt sometimes? And that is not the product of your environment. You feel guilt about your own legit standards for your own life and nobody else had to tell you about them. Why do you feel good around dysfunctional people sometimes because they make you feel better about you? Why why do you sense the presence of something that is bad? Because evil and sin declare the existence of the God that you say does not exist, just like the shade declares the essence, existence, and power of the sun. And why do we excuse it with nobody's perfect? <laughs> How do you know what perfect is? Where did you get that idea? Where did that standard come from? Where is that thing? Where's, where's that benchmark perfection? Where did that come from? In John, this is crazy, 2,000 years before says, because perfect love preceded all of us. John, a guy who was in the first century who never saw love, who watched torture, who watched might made right, who watched murder and bloodshed in ways we can't even imagine came to this conclusion. Are you serious? Who were these guys? (laughs) But because he watched Jesus, 
because he listened to Jesus, because he looked at the evidence, he concluded what every modern intellectual person would conclude 2,000 years later if there is a God. Love must precede unlove. Good must precede evil. Justice must precede injustice. The sun must precede the shade. And so here's the bottom line. For some of you, I just want to begin over these next now three weeks. I just want to invite you back. Because some of you walked away unnecessarily from a God who says, I am spirit and I'm father. And I don't know what somebody said God's told you, but I am love in my essence and in my nature. And the starting place is just to begin to ask the question, what do you learn about God from Jesus? Here's my, here's my homework for you if you're sincerely investigating. You, you should just download the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, all one word, YouVersion, and find an NIV translation. There's hundreds of them, so weed through all that. NIV or the message paraphrase, and just start in the book of John. You can type it in the little hourglass. You can find it even if you've never used a Bible. Or you have an old school Bible, it's toward the back just the book of John. John, who hung out with Jesus, wrote this on the island of Patmos toward the end of his life. And you should just begin to ask the question, what do we learn about God, the Father from the Son? What do we learn about the Father from Jesus? That is the starting place for you. And I'm telling you, and you may not believe me yet, but that's why I want to prod you. I want to encourage you. I want to bother you. I want to keep you up at night if I can. I want you to begin to sincerely investigate the gods that you walked away from that never existed. Because for some of you, you may discover something that you never knew. You may discover something that your church never told you. You may see Jesus in a different light. You may recognize that in history, the Jesus movement started because something happened in history. And it's why we have this beautiful library called the Bible. It's why we're here. It's why the name of Jesus is dominating the globe. Would have never happened without an event that happened in history that thousands of people believed was true. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And we believe he came to earth and he physically, literally died on a cross after living the perfect life we could not live. And he made huge claims about himself as being the resurrection and the life. So when he died, it was over. And what re-engaged his followers is not something they read because they didn't have much to read. And it wasn't even something they believed. And it wasn't something that Jesus taught, as amazing teacher as Jesus was. It was something they saw, a resurrected Christ. And when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, it validated everything that was said in the Jewish scriptures and necessitated hundreds of years later the documentation of the New Testament of what happened. And in that documentation that we take seriously because Jesus takes it seriously, He says, I am providing salvation and life, not just to Jewish people, not just to good people, not to religious people, not people who grew up in Sunday school. I am providing salvation and life to the world. And everybody who would put their faith and trust in me simply through faith, but not because of faith, faith in overwhelming evidence will be saved. So would you just be courageous enough to reinvestigate, to begin to ask the question, who is Jesus? begin to ask the question, what happened in history? And my hope, and I can't manipulate you into this, but my hope 
is that you will rediscover or discover for the first time who Jesus really is, which is your source of hope and life and salvation and meaning for this life. Would you just pray with me all over the house? If you're watching online, I'd love for you to pray with me right now. If you're podcasting somewhere, whether it's a dorm room, a coffee house, or you're in your car right now, uh, as I've said throughout this series, and I've heard from many of you, this message is as much for you as it is for people who are in the house in this moment. I, I just want to invite you very quickly, if you're in the place this morning where you're investigating, and, and I think we say this every week, but I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you had the courage to come, and in some ways it's a little bit of a risk. But we created this place in some fashion with you in mind, along with the longtime follower of Jesus. And so if you're here today investigating, questioning, grappling with some of these, these just things that you've kind of been carrying around, would you, would you just be, be willing to say, I just want to start to honestly reinvestigate and begin to look at Jesus. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, and that's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to make a decision today. I'm not trying to manipulate you into something. That's the last thing I want to do. But would you just say with uplifted hand, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to begin, because I've walked away, I just want to begin to reinvestigate, to, to look at this again, and it all starts with who is Jesus. Would you just raise your hand if that's you and you're willing to begin to take those initial steps that I want to begin to reinvestigate, I want to begin to question, I want to begin to take another look at Jesus. Right now, just lift up your hand to say that's me. Yeah, all right. Yeah, right on. Cool. Yeah. Jesus, I just thank you for what you're doing in this place. I thank you for what you're doing through this series, simply through your truth. And that's all it is. And I thank you that we get to be vehicles and vessels for that. But I just pray that you would continue to move people. I love what Acts 15, 19 says. Don't make it difficult for people who are turning. It's a process, turning to God. And my hope is, my agenda is clear that there would be many people who would fall in love with Jesus, that they would be introduced to who you really are, that their life would change forever. And so God, continue to do your work in this room and where this spreads far outside of this room. And we pray all of this in what we believe is the hope-giving, resurrecting name of Jesus. Amen.